Hello everyone, happy holidays to you all. I am Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the host of the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am also the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV. In this week's edition, we're going to talk to Dan Friedman about the best science fiction books of the year. Stephen Garrett will be here, as always, to talk about the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man No Way Home. And we're also going to talk to Kathy O'Neill about the disastrous Sex in the City reboot and just like that. But first, science fiction. And we're going to lead off this week. You're listening to Astro Zombies by The Misfits. Glenn Danzig singing a punk rock song about zombies from space. I figured that's appropriate since we're going to talk about science fiction. Enjoy, rock on. We'll be right back with Dan Freeman. We are continuing our year in review series this week. We're going to talk about the year in science fiction books. 2021 was a a good year for science fiction books, and Dan Friedman covers science fiction for us. Hello, Dan. Hey, Neil. How's it going? It's going fine. So you did a sort of a counterintuitive, somewhat counterintuitive take on the year in review list. You did a superlative list, meaning not necessarily books that were the best, but that had uh, certain qualities that, that made them stand out above the crowd. Yeah, well, I thought that since we were already looking back about books about the future, we could uh, we we had room for poetic life. The recent past of future reading, as you said. So we you started off with something called the most mostest, and that's uh, you chose a couple of books by uh, Nettie Akorafor and uh, a writer who I was not previously familiar with, but she is definitely at the front of the science fiction community, and she wrote a uh, books called Remote Control, well as a as a novella, and then a, a cyberpunk novel called Noor. Tell us a little bit about Nettie Akorafor. Yes, yeah, so and Nettie Akorafor is one of the leaders of the uh, movement to make science fiction a bit more diverse. She's a Nigerian-American and someone who is happy to write about African characters and also to write about Islam. So she's written about fantasy in Lagos in her book Lagoon. And in Remote Control, she writes about a young girl who becomes like super powerful uh, and it's kind of a fable and kind of a future fable. And it's um, I think it's kind of a, a bit of a departure for her. She often writes in between YA and sort of adult science fiction and science fantasy. But this is kind of it kind of captures a lot of the stuff that she does in YA and turns it into a kind of a creepy, slightly gothic tale that, that really works on an adult level. Uh, and then Noor is, again, another opportunity to read a, a cool, compelling uh, tale about characters you're not going to read if you're reading uh, White Men from the 50s. I was I was wondering where, where she'd come from, because, you know, the YA and adult um, fiction communities often don't meet up. And yet there's, you know, the YA author, authors have such a following and they sell so many more books than adult authors. So that's very interesting that she can <laughs> A remote control, she had a blurb from Veronica Roth. I was like, well, that's not the woman who wrote the Divergent series, and those are books for teenagers. So it makes sense. So Nettie Okorafor is a writer to watch out for. Someone who has been, um, 
who has been working in the uh, adult sci-fi vein and who we've talked about on this program before. Actually, we've talked about this particular book, Andy Weir. You picked up Project Hail Mary again uh, as something that, it, yeah, you know, this book was a, a huge hit and you liked it when you read it the first time as well. Yeah, no, it's just, it's a great book. It's a compelling read. I, you know, we've spoken about it before and it doesn't get any worse looking back on it. I don't, don't think we need to dwell on it too much. He's uh, a particular <laughs> author, but, but great. Definitely read it. All right. You you had a most disappointing uh, category. Uh, you know, you were you were uh, able to uh, find a book you didn't like. I always appreciate that. Uh, a book called uh, Sorrow Land by Rivers Solomon. Uh, Rivers Solomon is kind of, I think it's about not managing my expectations. And, uh, you know, so Rivers Solomon wrote this amazing uh, debut book called An Unkindness of Ghosts uh, and then followed that up with like a little bit of a different type of book called The Deep. Uh, and they both won awards, quite rightly. And so when they released Sorrowland, I think that everyone's expectations, including mine, were maybe impossibly high, but it just didn't seem to work. Like one of the things that was amazing about these previous books was that it really captured both a sense of the expansiveness and the claustrophobia of uh, deaths and space, uh, and also really had um, a sense of the characters, you know, and, and some really interesting characters uh, in terms of female characters, in terms of non-gender binary characters, and uh, and really captured that. And, and the people in Sorrowland, it didn't feel quite like they'd got the location or got the characters quite right. All right. Deep Well Orcadia by Harry Josephine Giles. Yeah. So, so I mean, just like have to mention this because it's written in a, a dialect of uh, sort of extended English that's not had a novel written in it for 50 years. And it's a verse novel and it's a science fiction novel. And um, it's quite extraordinary, and everyone should read it. Everyone should read verse in general, but this uh, in particular. And uh, Harry Josephine Giles, who I didn't know before they wrote, they wrote this novel, has done kind of an amazing job. So I'm excited to see what they're going to do in the future as well. So you're asking me to read a science fiction verse novel <laughs> written in the dialect of the Orkney Islands. Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I'm suggesting you do because then you probably won't ever have to read um, a, a verse novel or a novel in the Orkney dialect ever again. Yeah, I probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose, you know, if I'm looking to do, you know, intellectual gymnastics, I, 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 I'll, I'll delve in. All right, well, I'll put that on my list. It might not be first on my nightstand. Well, actually, uh, the uh, Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro has been uh, sitting on my nightstand for a while, waiting waiting for a read. I've just been um, caught up in these kind of longer history books that, that they just they just take a while. Uh, but this is a this is a uh, sci-fi turn from, you know, a literary author who, and well, he, you know, he went um, sort of sci-fi dystopia with Never Let Me Go, which was a previous novel of his, um, but he, he won the Nobel Prize in 2017, and then he wrote a sci-fi book about uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah, and so I think it's kind of an interesting thing that, you know, you, like, like when you get tenure, like, you can go off and do anything, so you, you win the Nobel Prize, it's like, well, what do you really want to do, Caswo? So and and yeah, so he's gone off and written a sci-fi novel, and it's it's just really appreciably better than the previous one. Like he's obviously 
not a bad writer. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but Never Let Me Go was not a great novel, and I wouldn't necessarily tell people to go and read that. But clearly he had unfinished business and went back and chose to use his time, well-deserved time, uh, on Claret and the Sun. It's just really interesting. It's just it's, it's fascinating, and, and he explores it in a beautiful way. Yeah, and this book has been quite popular. It was it was uh, nominated for a Booker Prize. Did did not win because they gave it to a depressing novel from South Africa uh, instead. But uh, it's 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 definitely on um, on my list. You also uh, nominated a uh, Best of World Science Fiction uh, anthology edited by Lavi Tidhar. Yeah, Lavi Tidhar. He's Lavi Tidhar. Okay, he's an Israeli uh, writer who lives in England. I mean, he was born and raised in Israel and lives in England. It's a beautiful book because there's so much writing going on in so many different countries. And it just really gives you a glimpse into what's really interesting to people outside the Anglophone ambit and outside of New York and London. Uh, And so there's translations from Chinese, from Italian and all around the world. As uh, as you can imagine, they deal with things that are of crucial importance there those are nuances of colonialism that are not you know about just you know the triangle trade but actually sort of lived experiences of today's colonial importance like how how are different cultures important in different places and then that that is then projected onto a future landscape in in fascinating ways well, well, that's what's interesting to me about sci-fi now is that it has it has it really is no longer about um, white American, you know, weirdos, computer weirdos writing their uh, their dystopian predictions of the future. I mean, it, it is a an international genre. I mean, the most you know the most well-known and prominent sci-fi novels of you know recent years were the Three Body Problem books coming out right. of China, and you know now we so I mean I don't know if that was the start of some sort of explosion or a wave, but it seems like you know. Your list alone shows that, you know, sci-fi is no longer what it once was. However, you also nominated (laughs) something called Shards of Earth by Adrian (laughs) Tchaikovsky. What a great name. I wish wish that were my name. I wish that were my byline. But, uh, you know, Shards of of Earth sounds like uh, very classic sci-fi. Exactly. So so I think, what you know, we have – it's not that science fiction has just changed irrevocably and and can't go back. I think there's – you know, we now have – the best or at least a significantly good section of, of old school science fiction and some of the new stuff. So, you know, you could also think of Andy Weir as being kind of a bit old school sci-fi in certain ways, but this is, but Tchaikovsky is space opera. It's, you know, burning earth, it's spaceships, it's uh, aliens. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's rough and tumble stuff. It's great stuff. It's Harry Harrison for the 21st century. That sounds like a lot of fun. And then you also have a short list of other stuff you want to you want to read, including um, a novel by Christopher Paolini, who that's the guy who wrote Aragon, the dragon books. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, no, these, these just look like fascinating books. And they're also quite different. So the Paolini and the, the Miles books are quite different. And there's also uh, there's also a book last year by Jeff Vandermeer, which I, uh, I uh, which is called Hummingbird Salamander, which I, which is, a, again, very different, which. I didn't mention, but could have done in this place. Yeah, I think really what there is to take away from this is that, uh, you know, the world may be dying, but but the literature of the future is at least alive and well. I I think the world is not going to die. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, we are, I know I know it's very trendy to think so, uh, but I, I I think that the obviously the world is changing. Um, but yeah, even if it does, at least we went out with the bang, <laughs> good sci-fi novels. So what whoever is whoever's left or whatever finds us, they're gonna be like, well, they they really uh, they really had a diverse selection of uh, dystopian futures to choose from. Yeah, they really got the, they hit they they did a really great job of getting it wrong. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, that's the story of sci-fi, though. Dan, uh, thank you so much for covering this. Uh, this is one of my favorite genres. I don't read in it as deeply as you do, but uh, you give me good advice along Great. the way. So I appreciate it. Our readers appreciate it. And we will talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Neil. Speak to you later. One of the longest awaited movies in movie history is <laughs> Spider-Man No Way Home has appeared on our screens. At last, all the Spider-Mans are here. By the time you hear this segment, the spoilers will be out. So Stephen and I are going to do a non-spoiler-free discussion of Spider-Man No Way Home, the latest movie in the endless Marvel Cinematic Universe. Stephen, you wrote a review of this. You gave it a good four stars. I would pretty much agree with that assessment. Really? Because you're, you know, you talked about how you're quite the super fan and I, I feel like I'm agnostic and I gave it four. I, I would have assumed you'd want five. Well, I mean, five stars has got it. You got the movie has to be like pretty much flawless uh, for right. five stars. You know, of all the Marvel movies, maybe you give five stars to Black Panther, uh, Avengers Endgame, possibly Thor Ragnarok. You know, this was <laughs> this was this was a certainly like a very satisfying and fun uh, Spider-Man movie. But it was also, you know, pulp garbage. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time. I mean, let, let's not kid ourselves. It's not it's not like a some kind of transcendent work of art. I just love when comic book movies literally have like uh, our heroes go into a like high school lab and like fire up the Bunsen burners and then make some ridiculously rare concoction that cures, you know, evil yeah. villain disease. Yeah, several of them, several completely yes. different evil villain diseases. Uh, 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 um, yeah, that was that was no problem. And they did it in about an hour. Yeah, it doesn't take long once you put your mind to it. You got enough people there. Yeah, they're all scientific geniuses. So the premise, this is basically uh, Marvel's real introduction of the live-action Marvel Universe, real introduction of the multiverse concept, which is going to dominate the MCU for a long time. They they, they did the multiverse already in uh, the animated series What If, which you probably didn't watch, Mm, but there was a lot of multiverse, a lot of playing around with – you know, different identities for different heroes and, and various uh, outcomes and, and all that. And they, so this movie, the live action movie, this really introduces us to that concept with real actors. And what's so amazing about this, villains from the previous iterations of the Spider-Man universe, the uh, Andrew Garfield and the Tobey Maguire ones, come through a, basically a wormhole and uh, and really chew up the screen. I mean, you got I got to <laughs> say, you know, Willem Dafoe really or did really did not uh, leave anything at the door. No, no, it's all it's all on the field. I also weirdly like they de-age Alfred Molina, but like Willem Dafoe, they're like, nah, he's fine. 
he definitely looks a little ragged more than he did 20 years ago. Right. Know. But he was fact. He was just, I thought he was fantastic. In oh, that. And, great. and Alfred Molina. Yeah. They did de-age him uh, as Dr. Octopus, but he was also terrific. And I thought Jamie Foxx, they gave him, a, a, he was actually better in this <laughs> movie than he was in the movie where he was the actual Spider-Man villain. I thought. Oh, I mean, certainly more memorable because I barely remembered him from the Garfield films. Like, yeah. I literally thought he was in the McGuire films. I don't know. I, I got it all screwed up. But he was so much more suave in this movie. Well, and yeah, charm. he's suave, charming. He's been, well, as my, I was talking to my son about it, there's like, he just had better writing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He just had, he had, he had some some laugh. Let them let him, they let him be funny and, uh, you know, legitimately threatening. Yeah, it's kind of nice. You know, poor uh, Thomas Hayden Church, though. Good Lord. I mean, that's a pretty lousy villain anyway. And, you know, they they bring him back for really no good reason than for him just to sit around, and be a pile of sand. Yeah. They, yeah. He never really has more than five, <laughs> seconds, five seconds where he's not a special effect. Uh, yeah. And, and the lizard, pretty much the same thing, although he's certainly ominous looking. Um, I love the lizard. You know, he's a giant lizard who runs around in the lab coat. I, lo- I love I love that character. Yeah, um, I miss the lab coat. He didn't quite have he was naked in this one, right? Yeah. Yeah. The lab coats from the comic books. Needs really, a lab coat. Yeah. But then. All right. Spoiler alert, anyone who turned off the button. <laughs> but then through the wormhole pops the old, the two old Spider-Mens. What? Um, yes, yeah, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield uh, don the outfit again and are in this movie. They come through, uh, the, through the multiverse, and, uh, you know, they're also quite enjoyable to watch. I thought, I especially thought Andrew Garfield uh, seemed to be having a lot of fun. You know, he's not... He, he, you know, Tobey Maguire, you know, looks his age. As oh, going. yeah. Oh, he for sure does. You know, I mean, at least, you know, as some, someone sitting next to me was like, I thought he was going to be fat. <laughs> <laughs> me. And, and yeah, but he well, and he wasn't. But he was definitely they didn't de-age him. And, and Andrew Garfield is still a pretty fresh character himself. Yeah, so he, yeah. he he seemed to be, uh, you know, and his Spider-Man career got cut off short because just for various because those movies were bad and they wanted to integrate Spider-Man into the MCU. So he seemed happy to be yeah. back in the role. And he was, he was, a, I thought, he, I thought he was a lot of fun and, and handled it well. I mean, the whole thing was, was very entertaining. I got to say the whole, it was, it was nonsense, absolute nonsense, but extremely entertaining nonsense. Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes a Spider-Man. No, it definitely gives you all the feels if you're familiar with the other trilogies and you have any sort of endearment towards the uh, the old characters. And Andrew Garfield also is clearly relishing playing a sort of insecure Spidey compared to the other two. Like he's he's Spidey three and kind of cracks jokes and and they're reassuring him like, no, you are amazing. You're amazing. Which is, I guess, another joke because those movies were famously called The Amazing Spider-Man, right? Right. And and those are the Spider-Man movies no one likes. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> he's like the worst Spider-Man. And yet now he's been redeemed. The movie has redeemed him. And there's also like lots of Doctor Strange action in this in this film. If you like Doctor Strange action. Yeah, I, I personally think Doctor Strange action is always good. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, no complaints, really. And I, and I like the clever twists with the nanotechnology and how they relate to Doc Ock's arms. And I like how the happy Hogan technology from Stark Industries that keeps popping up. Again, this weird crate that is called a fabricator and can very handily 
create whatever the hell you needed to create, you know, make, make anything very make, convenient. Make it. Yeah. And, and not, not just like make a cup of soup, you know, really <laughs> make anything. Yeah. And so, you know, there's also this, I won't spoil, but there's genuine tragedy in, in the film and there's, you know, there's a lot of pathos and I felt like the movie handled it very well and gave it time to breathe and made it feel believable and integrated it into the larger Spider-Man universe. It was, the whole thing was just a success. You know, you never people were saying after Eternals, which you know, was, as we discussed previously, was kind of a turkey. And, you know, some other sort of Black Widow was not a great movie. Yeah, people were. Well, I saying, liked it though. Yeah, that was. Yeah, nice. it was good, but it wasn't great. But people are people are saying, well, like, you know, they're they're counting the MCU out. I'm like, ah, just wait for the Spider-Man. The Spider-Man. <laughs> Don't you feel though that there is something about it that is it's more clever than it is smart, and it's more of a callback and a remix of familiar tropes and characters than it is anything fresh and new. Not that that's bad, but it does feel very encore. It feels very like warmed up leftovers. I don't know. It's hard to say exactly. It's hard to say, you know, it's all just one big slipstream. I mean, last night, as we're, we're talking, I'd watched an episode of Hawkeye, which is bringing back the Kingpin from Daredevil, who also appears in the new Spider-Man movie. You know, at this point, it's just like a cultural slipstream that, that, that we're all gliding in. I mean, I saw this uh, movie, I saw it at 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and it was before school let out. I live in Texas where children are allowed to go to school still. And, um, you know, there were no children in the theater, there, but there were a lot of adult children. And <laughs> and let me tell young you, at, young at heart. I, yeah, I sat next to two guys. who I don't know. They're probably in their late 20s. And they I mean, I usually get annoyed when people are talking in movies, but they were so knowledgeable <laughs> about the universe that it was like I was like all right fine I'm actually gonna listen to them in case I miss something <laughs> right right exactly it was, like, it was like watching it with footnotes and everybody in the theater knew exactly what was going on wow. at every moment you know it was like it's, it's it's like this common cultural language it was a very multicultural audience and and you have to kind of respect Marvel for that it's meaningless it's junky, but it is extremely enjoyable. And it's like one of the, and this is like, this is the really the only cinematic experience. It's the only cinematic experience that really even qualifies as a four quadrant blockbuster at this point. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's mass and vast appeal, you know, but I do wonder like how much longer can this keep iterating and iterating and creating all these patterns? It's like, you know, to, to call uh, back from the movie, the, uh, the mirror dimension, the, Doctor Strange creates to because he can control Spidey in it. And then Spidey figures out it's all like, what is it, Archimedes patterns and triangles and it's trigonometry. And he figures out and sees all the patterns. And I kind of feel like this is getting more and more complex. These incredibly intricate patterns and slipstream interconnectedness, a web, you could even call it's it, web. of different oh. stories. And we're all getting caught in that web. Yeah, there you go. I mean, did, have hey, you ever read? I have, landed it. I stuck the landing. Yeah, pretty good, Stephen. Have you ever read comic books? Uh, a couple back when there were fewer people on Earth and fewer comic books. This is what comic books are now. They're the, I mean, there are these multi-dimensional, multi-universal yeah. uh, narratives where there are several iterations of every character, you know, going to battle with each other. It's just what it, it's just what it is. And so, um, so it's incredible to me that uh, they're managing to do it in movies in a way that it almost works. 
Yeah, I mean, it does. You know, I guess the cynic in me uh, and the um, the agnostic or maybe the, um, you know, the person who recuses himself from comic book movies to a certain extent looks at this in a very objective way and just thinks the savviest corporate move is to create a sort of multiverse get out of jail free card where you can basically sub in any actor you need, you know, and put it in any world you want. It's just constant reinvention, constant reinvention. And, you know, that means in perpetuity, any studio can make any iteration it wants and it's valid, right? Welcome to comic books. <laughs> I'm learning slowly. I'm learning yeah. slowly. Yeah, that's, the, that's just that. That's just the way it's going to be from now on. At least we still have entertainment for the time being. Let's just appreciate that. All right. So Spider-Man No Way Home is in theaters now. Um, there are many Spider-Mans. Uh, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. You know by now. And You're a listening. great. Uh, you know, end credit music cue, right? From uh, oh my god! I hope, yeah, I hope you make that the the intro and the outro music for us. Yeah, that, that closing credits were fantastic, and then yeah. you know, and then and then it closes not just with an end credit scene, but with a, a trailer. Basically, a trailer. Yeah, a for trailer another, yeah. for another multiverse movie, which which also looks fantastic. So um, you know, I I will we'll talk about that then. We got nothing else to talk about but Marvel movies because. They're the only movies people make anymore. So uh, let me let me really quickly ask you about the uh, the first cut scene that's in the credits that mirrors what we saw in a way with uh, Venom. Let oh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, nothing, nothing is sacred. I am waiting for Marvel versus Star Wars. <laughs> Why Inevitable. not? Why Inevitable. not just have Darth Vader come in through the portal? Who cares? <laughs> Wasn't it Thanos who said it is inevitable? It is inevitable. He was inevitable. And it is inevitable that Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to come to Earth and fight the Hulk or something. I don't know. Who cares? It doesn't matter. None of it, nothing means anything. All right, Stephen, happy holidays. Thank you, sir. Okay, bye. No pop culture franchise ever dies anymore. Now there's a new season of Sex and the City, of all things. The reanimated corpse of Sex and the City is now airing on HBO or HBO Max or whatever you call it. It's called And Just Like That. And I think it means, and just like that, we're old and no one cares about us anymore. But I'm not exactly sure what that refers to, but I'm guessing it's something along those lines. We have a hilarious review of And Just Like That up on Book and Film Globe right now. My my old friend and Book and Film Globe contributor Kathy O'Neill wrote it up, and I'm so glad she did. Kathy is here to talk to me about it. Hello. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yes, of course. So, and just like that, you titled your review, uh, And Just Like Crap. I, you you really didn't have anything good to say about this. No, and, and it's too bad, too, because during the original, when it came out in the late 90s, I did watch, and I watched it every week. And I was pretty into it and it was bad, but I, you know, we all watched it. My friends and I would get together once a week and have drinks and try and figure out who was Carrie and who was Samantha and things like that. Now in the late nineties, I knew you in Chicago, right? Now you, you were not living in New York, although you are a, a New Jersey girl, yeah. woman, person uh, by birth, but, but you were all watching this in Chicago, you and your girl. Yes. Yes. You did know me then. And I probably just didn't admit that I was watching it. 
I know uh, when we all hung out, we watched like a lot of Bulls games and stuff like that. But there's no way I would have told you and all of our friends that I was gathering with my girlfriends to watch it every week. Oh, no, we were way too cool and indie and alternative to be watching something as as bourgeois and despicable as Sex in the City. Mm hmm. Yes, the show is bad and it is campy, but what seemed kind of you know interesting and appealing and fun about the show has just has has lost its mojo with this with this. Re- I mean, the movies, the Sex in the City movies were also terrible, but this in particular is is particularly execrable. It's so bad. It's just it was so hard to watch. And I did go see the movie, too. The second one I didn't. Um, but I, I tuned in a little bit uh, recently for the second movie. And it's like Godfather three. You don't want to watch it. You don't want to discuss it. It, it tarnishes anything that was good about the series. <laughs> and what's so funny about it, just like that, it sounds like, they, you know, they try to update, you know, Carrie Bradshaw in the original show was like, a, she was like a sex columnist based on Candace Bushnell, who wrote the sex in the city books. And, you know, she was a, she was a, a lady about town in late nineties, early two thousands, New York, which is obviously a very different city than the one it is now. Now and then they try to update her in this one. They make her like some sort of podcaster. Now, yeah, they make her a podcaster, but she doesn't know anything about podcasting. She really hasn't. I I don't know what she's done since her column ended. I don't even know how she ever had a column. And just like that refers to a lot of this this refrain, this mantra that she said in the original series. She would sit down in front of her computer and she always said something like, "And I had to wonder, did Big really love me?" Stuff like that. So I found it hard to believe that anybody would would still want to listen in this day and age because her stuff wasn't racy. It was just more about like who's better, twenty something girls or thirty something girls. There was nothing really sexy about her sex column. Right, and the you know the one character who did have a lot of sex in Sex in the City, Samantha, played by Kim Cattrall, is noticeably absent. Yeah, it's like you just don't know if she died from too much sex or um, supposedly in the in the show, she's moved to London. And I didn't know whether New York ran out of men and she just had to go to another continent. But it turns out she's moved because of some kind of slight. I guess Carrie didn't need her as a publicist anymore. But Carrie really didn't do much. She had like a once a week column in something called the New York. I think it was called the New York Globe. And I don't really think she ever had any money. So I can't see Samantha moving to a different continent because Carrie's not her client anymore. I mean, Carrie was probably throwing her about less than $5,000 a year, but she's gone. And, you know, she's definitely missed because, I mean, she was so, it was so cheesy, her humor. It was, it was like something out of Benny Hill, but it was funny. Some of her lines were funny and she was at least an interesting character on the show. She was a little bit older than the rest of them. She was really successful and she was fiercely loyal to all of her friends, which leads me to believe she would have never just packed up and moved away because of some kind of perceived slight among the gals. Now, and, and then you also point out the uh, inherent ridiculousness of Miranda, played by Cynthia Nixon, who uh, is a lawyer, I know, is a very successful lawyer, and apparently she has to go back to college in yeah. order to get a job, to get a master's or a PhD or whatever, <laughs> so she can get a job at a nonprofit in her yes. 50s. She's a, she's a litigator. She's a partner. She makes partner, I think, before she's 40. And now she's at Columbia getting a master's so she can help women. And I just think that, you know, <laughs> I volunteered a food pantry. They'll let me do all their social media. I have a background in journalism. You don't have to go back to school for that. 
she there's there's many, many nonprofits where very successful people sit on their boards or go to work for them. And, you know, she was making something like, you know, five hundred thousand dollars at this law firm. Any nonprofit's going to be happy to have her for twenty eight thousand five hundred dollars a year. So she's back at school to show this kind of fish out of water character. She's older. She's just you know, she goes from somebody who's just being so powerful and so smart to just this stuttering idiot uh, making all sorts of gaffes on her first day of class. For some unknown reason, she stops at a bar for a glass of Chablis on her way to her first class. And I just didn't know that Chablis existed anymore. During the day. Yeah, at 11 o'clock. I think her first class is 11 o'clock. Now, you and I went to college in, in, the, in, the, in the mid 80s. We did a few whippets before class, but not my first class and not my master's. <laughs> right. And not a glass, not a glass of Chablis. It so, just um, wasn't a glass well, of Chablis. <laughs> well, so one of the things about this and just like that is, you know, there's, you know, it's a modern TV show. So, of course, they're making all these concessions about uh, toward wokeism and they're trying to make comedy out of these like sort of privileged white women running across the new new reality of our world. But it doesn't quite work. It feels a little clueless. Yeah, because they, they've they've introduced some really interesting characters, but they've never really changed. These women have never evolved. They're about 55 years old. I made some some gaffes and some errors when I was 20. I still do. But they just seem so flustered all the time. And Carrie is on a podcast about sex and she doesn't really talk on the podcast. And she just she literally says at one point they ask her about masturbation and she asked to buy a vowel. She says that I'd like to buy a vowel. Yeah. And she's not funny. And I don't know why they've invited her on. She was never somebody who was tech savvy anyway. She was a very proud Luddite. You know, her computer broke and she had to get her her creepy boyfriend Aiden to help her fix her um, computer in a cheesily titled My Motherboard Myself (laughs) episode on the series. So she's not there. Nobody knows why she's there. She doesn't need the money. Big has all this money. He's just he rakes it in. He's some kind of businessman. He's always riding around in town cars. And now they live in this penthouse that they bought together. But for some reason, she still keeps her apartment that she never goes to. But you can tell they're happy because at night while they're cooking dinner, they dance around a lot. And they're just they're very rich. They're very in love. And he's a he's a cool guy. Chris Noth is was always great as big. Um, He was kind of a dick. You know, he was this roguish character who would just pull up in these town cars smoking a cigar and be like, get in, kid. Um, and they were off and on for many years. Um, he dumps her many times for other women. Um, finally, they get married in, in the movie after he leaves her, not at the altar, but in front of the limo on the way to the church. Yeah. Um, well, here's, the, here's the thing, though. And here's the twist, which we all know about at this point. Mr. Big dies in episode one of this while on a peloton. Well, not a peloton riding into his 10,000th mile, I believe. But that's too bad because I think, you know, as I say in the piece, Samantha and Big were probably the most interesting things about Carrie. They were real, you know, and she's just this kind of selfish child. And yeah, so he's gone. Samantha's gone. Some of the minor characters are back, like Miranda's husband, Steve, who I don't know what happened, but he's supposed to be a few years older. So maybe he's his late 50s. And all of a sudden they have him playing. He's almost deaf, but they never say why. And he's cupping his ear in the episodes and he just keeps saying what. And he's wearing like these cardigan sweaters. And at some point he just says to Miranda, death sucks. 
And I, I don't know. He's just he seems like this old, old man. And I don't know <laughs> what they're getting at. And then uh, Charlotte's husband, Evan Handler, he's actually a really great character. Um, but he just, you know, puts up with Charlotte's whims and her. They're very, very rich, too. And she's all about status. And he just wants to make her happy. And he's just this sweaty, bald Jewish guy who it's totally in his contract all the time for him to just talk about how Jewish he is in every episode. And and she's got these two daughters and one of them's a tomboy and she wants to skateboard all over New York. And that's just that's the major problem in Charlotte's life is that one of her daughters is a tomboy. Yeah, it sounds it sounds awfully tough. You know, I got to say, Kathy, like I uh, I read reviews that people submit and then I talk to them on the show and I find myself feeling overwhelmed at all the TV shows and movies that I, I need to see and that I need to know about that I need to consume because there's so much great culture out there. Your piece did not persuade me that it was important to watch. And just like that, I am grateful to you because finally here is a piece of popular culture that I can swerve far away from and don't need to know anything about. So, well, uh, as your friend, I made it, I made an effort as your old friend to, I watched it so you wouldn't have to. Yeah. Um, you know, I felt like I should watch it because I watched it when it first came out. These are women who are supposed to be my age. A lot of my friends, you know, are lawyers, are in entertainment, in the arts, are managers. And I guess it was hard to relate back in the 90s, but I thought maybe I'd watch it again and see. It just seems even further away, you know. Well, and you close your piece with such a great observation. You know, you're getting <laughs> you're going to be getting together with some girlfriends in a um in a very uh, different New York where people are wearing masks inside. You have to present your vaccine passport in order to get into a restaurant. And you're like, you know, my friends and I are, are, are going to be like huddled in our fleeces at a bar in Brooklyn. Sure. And, and what do you you're not going to be talking about sex? Problem. No. And I also think like it, these women are supposed to be all New York and they never really went anywhere but to brunch and to some nightclubs with dumb names like bed. And you never saw them go to the movies. You never saw them run for tampons. You never saw them go to Jersey. It's very hard to relate to a bunch of people who have never evolved and never had a clue anyway, you know? So I guess I watched back then because it was, it was cutting edge. You know, it was one of the first series that HBO ever had. And this is before Girls and The Wire and The Sopranos, and it was supposed to be racy, you know? And so we wanted to watch it because we were women of, of that age who did talk about sex, but it never really was relatable at all. Well, we've learned our lesson. You know, it's it's funny, like, and we talked about this too, you know, The Sopranos, also The Bloom came off The Sopranos Rose with that Sopranos movie that HBO uh, released this year, but not not as much, not no. as much as this. You know, that, that that was not nearly as, you know, at least that was a prequel, you know, and it added a little something to the story. This, this, is, a, this is a parting shot for Sex and the City, I think. And the, unfortunately, I think there's eight more episodes. So perhaps after the tenth one, I will, <laughs> I will recap, but probably not. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not gonna. I, I mean, if you feel a burning desire, you can try to pitch it to me. But I'm, I, I don't know how open I'm gonna be to it. I can't imagine that it's gonna be February. And you're still gonna be watching this shit. <laughs> if it is, then the, that says a lot worse about me. And Michael King and the and the cast and crew of Sex and the City that says something that like I really just need to find a big and find a life 
and find some stilettos and, and run around Chicago. Um, but no, I don't think I'll make it to season to episode 10. I probably won't make it past the next one just to see if Steve says anything silly. Well, I, I hope for a more prosperous future uh, for you and for us all, uh, and that you find a better show to watch soon. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Kathy, I'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thanks to Kathy O'Neill for talking to me about And Just Like That, the Sex and the City reboot, this season's most annoying hate watch. Also, thanks to Stephen Garrett for talking to me about Spider-Man or letting me talk to him about Spider-Man. I must admit, I'm a lifelong Spider-Man fan, so that movie was candy for me. And also to Dan Friedman for covering the world of science fiction and talking to me about the best science fiction books of 2021. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We have spent the year covering books and film and streaming TV during an ever-changing media and entertainment environment. We are still here, and we are glad that you're still here and still listening. Happy holidays. Stay safe. Actually, you know what? Do whatever you want. Enjoy yourself. Life is short. I'm medium height. We'll be back next week to talk more about books and film and streaming TV. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Probably not. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.